Today I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sisthenes, I think, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Good morning. We're beginning this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians, and as Howard read for us, we're going to be looking at the first three verses. Let's take a moment and ask God for his help as we consider his word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray in these few moments that you have given us to consider your word. We ask that by your grace, you might give us the power of your spirit to understand what it means, to apply it to the specific things that are going on in our life, and especially, Lord, that you would help us to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its uh, grace and mercy to us, that we would trust you to forgive us of our sin and to make us more like your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. The book of 1 Corinthians is a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that was in the city of Corinth and was, he was probably in the city of Ephesus uh, when he wrote it. And he was writing to a church that was undergoing a lot of challenges, a lot of problems. In fact, one of the things we're going to be thinking a lot about as we look at the book of 1 Corinthians is unity or disunity. Disunity was going on in the church of Corinth. There was disunity between the people of the church in the city of Corinth. And there was also disunity between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. So the people in this church were arguing with one another, and the people of this church were arguing with Paul. So everybody was arguing. What do we call that? Sunday. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is, there's nothing new under the sun. But these first three verses, we might be tempted to sort of throw them out as a standard greeting, which they are in many ways. But we also should recognize as we look at these three verses, the Apostle Paul is going to show us the basis in which he is going to draw him and the church into unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the basis by which he wants to seek unity is really, really important. There's lots of ways to seek uh, unity. One way to seek unity is negotiation. You've engaged with this at work, uh, at home, between your parents, between your children, and between your spouses. This is when there is disunity. So you sit down, or you stand up, and you talk, or you holler, I don't know, and you negotiate. And you decide who's gonna get what they want and who's not gonna get what they want. And what do we say? We say, you know it was a really good deal if nobody got what they wanted. And this is how we sometimes try to arrive at unity. If everybody's unhappy, then we've done it right. This is not the basis with which Paul is going to fight for unity. It is not going to be a negotiated unity. Other ways of seeking unity is a power play. This is when wars break out. This is when marriages fracture. This is when people quit a job. This is when things break down. When one person says, listen, we don't have agreement on this, and I happen to have more power than you, and so I'm going to force upon you my will, 
my will is this, so my way or the highway. And this is one way of seeking unity. In fact, this is probably second only to negotiation. We will try to negotiate, and then if that doesn't work, fine. It's my way or the highway. This is not the way in which the Apostle Paul is going to seek unity. Another way to seek unity, and maybe this is the most popular one, I don't know. You can decide. We'll take a poll later and decide which one you like most. Another way to, sweep, uh, to have unity is to sweep it under the rug. Somebody has done something that really, really bothers me, and the best way to have unity is for me to pretend it didn't happen and to never speak of it again. But I will carry that wound around and nurse it and pet it at night and hold it close, right? And this is how we have unity. What I call this is the calm surface of the water, but underneath there are alligators, right? The water looks smooth. Wow, this is such a nice place until you dive deep and realize, holy cow, everybody here hates each other. But they're really, really polite. Yeah, and this is another way of seeking unity. Paul doesn't want to do this either. So what is the basis for Paul seeking unity? And let me give, you, give away the answer. The basis for unity is that all the parties involved are going to seek the Lord as their point of reference. Not their own interests, not winning an argument, but they are going to seek the Lord as their point of reference. And Paul assumes that if all the parties involved will seek the Lord, that unity will come as each one becomes more like God. They're going to seek uh, to know the Lord, become more like him through Jesus, and then unity will happen. We might say it this way if we understand the book of 1 Corinthians. Disunity is a sign of people disregarding God. Disunity is a sign of people disregarding God. Now, there's lots of things that you might argue people are dis... Well, somebody is disregarding God if they do naughty things. They sin in ways that make me uncomfortable. So they're disregarding God. But somebody who is dis causing disunity in the church, we say, well, that's not disregarding God. They just have strong opinions. And that's, that we kind of excuse it. And so what we have to understand, Paul's going to say, no, 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 disunity is actually a way in which we disregard God because we don't have him as our point of reference. So let's dive into verses one and the first part of verse two. God works with his people. He takes the initiative. This is how Paul is going to drive unity home with the people of Corinth is he's going to help us see how God works with his people. First thing he does is he takes initiative. So think of a playground. And they're picking teams for the kickball game. And so you've got all the kids in a line and two captains. Anybody done this? Right. This is why we go to therapy. <laughs> and so you pick, the, you pick the kids. And then whoever uh, you think is best, you pick first. And then when you pick last, and then the kid says, oh, no, we're good. And the teacher says, no, pick Johnny. He needs to play too. But he doesn't. He's terrible. And so this is how it happens, right? And then Johnny ends up in therapy. That's fine. Well, how does God... How does God pick teams? And this is what Paul is going to drive home. If God were choosing teams, he would not choose them based on the way we choose teams. He would have a, a different way of choosing them. And it's just as likely that when God is choosing teams, he's going to choose somebody not even in line. He's going to say, oh, I'll take Billy over there playing in the mud hole. But he's, he doesn't want to play. Oh, I don't care. I pick him. He knows he's terrible. That's why he's playing in a mud hole. And what would God do? Yeah, he's my first choice. So God takes the initiative 
because he is going to draw people to himself based on his own designs. So this is what we have to understand as we look at these two verses. Our, our relationship with God, each person and their relationship with God is based on the work that he calls us into and the relationship he calls us into. So our purpose in his kingdom is the result of his initiative. So if you are in his kingdom, why? God wanted to do that. So everything God's working with his people is a result of his taking the initiative to draw his people to himself. It is not based on our initiative. Look at, remember, the kickball line. You've got all the kids lining up. One of the captains, it's his turn. Then what happens? A couple of the boys want to be on his team. So what do they start doing? Pick me, pick me, pick me. Because they think their initiative will result in them being drawn. God doesn't do that. God chooses on his initiative. He is wholly in charge of drawing people to himself. Look at verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus, uh, the, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Why was Paul a believer? God called him. Paul uh, called, or God called Paul. Paul did not call on God. The one who took the initiative was God himself. That's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. I was called by God to be an apostle. I didn't write a letter to God asking to be an apostle. What he argues here is not his title, but his role. He says, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is not saying, I am an apostle, and so therefore I have a name tag that says, Paul, apostle in the church. What he is describing here is what he does. What does an apostle do? He's describing his role. The apostle's role is to be sent by God to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It isn't complicated. Sent by God, first job, don't stay, do what? Go, first job. So that's to be an apostle, you have to be sent. And when you get to where you're going, what do you do? Jesus is risen from the dead, and somebody would then say, how do you know? And his answer is, I saw him. We had a conversation. He was dead, now he's alive. How do you know he's alive? Talk to him. I don't talk to dead people. I talk to all life people. This guy was alive. So an apostle, he's just describing his role. God showed up to me and said, hey, Paul, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Tell them I'm risen from the dead. It's very, so he's describing his role. He's got a simple job to do, and who gave him the job? God did. Did he apply for the job? No. Why not? Wasn't qualified. He wasn't qualified at all. So his argument here is he had a commission to get a particular job done. God said, go, and Paul says, got a job to do. That's my role. God sent me. I've got to go. Paul wasn't seeking accolades. Paul wasn't seeking merit badges. Paul wasn't seeking to impress people. Paul wasn't seeking anything other than to get the job done that God sent him to do. Let's look at this call in his life. This is Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It's a long section, so I didn't put it up on the screens. You can uh, listen to me read, or you can follow along in your copy of Scripture. I'm going to read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul... Okay, let me give my opinion here. I get two words in. I've got to give an opinion. 
because uh, I still hear this, but this is just my opinion, but my, you know, I always say, what do I say? I said, it's fine if you have a different opinion because it's the free country, you're welcome to be wrong. <laughs> Paul's name was not changed. Like many people in his culture, he had two ways in which he was called. One name was a Jewish name, Saul. It's a Jewish name. If I remember right, there was a king of Israel named Saul. He also, this same, the variant of the name Saul in Greek was Paul. This isn't complicated. He didn't change his name. Now, you may disagree. Good for you. But Saul, or if his Greek buddies were talking about him, hey, Paul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, that is Paul, said, Who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and to the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold... He is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Paul was saved on his way to arrest Christians and have them murdered. He'd already been a part of this once. Go back to Acts chapter 7. He participated with the murder of Stephen. On his way, Jesus interrupted him. He was not seeking the Lord. He was not spiritually curious. He was not a seeker. He was hell-bent on arresting Christians and destroying the fledgling young church. That was, the, that was his ministry goal. Destroy the church of Christ. And Jesus, the risen Savior, showed up and said, I'm going to save you. And then he goes to Ananias, Jesus does, and says, I want you to go pray for Paul. And Ananias says, well... I'm not sure 
about that. And God tells Ananias everything he has called Paul to do. How long has Paul been a Christian? Like 20 minutes. And God has already lined out everything he is going to do. Who took the initiative to save Paul? God. Who took the initiative to call Paul into ministry to the Gentiles? God. Who qualified Paul in this ministry? God. What did Paul do? Uh, He took a walk, I guess. He did nothing. The initiative was all God's. Paul, of course, in the end had to put his faith in the risen time. The argument here, Paul, what he is saying in 1 Corinthians 1, he was called by the will of God to be an apostle. Could you imagine what is going through his mind as he says that? What was he, the, the way in which his life was moving when God called him. So when Paul was saved, his salvation was entirely God's work. Paul had total confidence in the Lord, no confidence in his own initiative. Paul here is displaying no sense of position, no sense of swagger, no sense of I got it figured out. This is a total communication to the church in Corinth. Just some guy walking down the road wanting to kill Christians got called to serve the gospel. That's what he's saying in in Corinth. And this is going to be the first part of his basis for unity is his perspective on his own life. What does he bring to the table? Nothing. Merely a response to Christ by faith. Let's look at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. That's a short section. I'm just going to read the first part of verse 2 and we'll end uh, this section here. The church of God in Corinth. We just want to bear a contrast. One writer showed this contrast. It's worth observing. The letter to Thessalonica, the greeting goes like this. The church of Thessalonians in God. And so Paul writing to the, uh, the Christians in the city of Thessalonica says, listen, I want to talk to you, church, that you, church, that is in the Lord. Of course, the people of Thessalonica were under intense persecution, and, and Paul cared for them deeply. He's trying to comfort them. To the people in Corinth, what does he say? The difference is important. The church of who? Not the Corinthians. He's making a point. This ain't your church. And as we go through the book of Corinthians, you're going to recognize this is what the people think. This is the Corinthian church by Corinthians and for Corinthians. And Paul starts out his letter saying, first of all, God didn't call me. Secondly, it ain't your church. This is the church of God in Corinth. You're welcome, church. Because God didn't have to open a chapter in Corinth is what he's arguing. God didn't have to show up and draw you to himself. God called you to himself. So when Paul says, I was called by God, by his initiative, now he's saying to the Corinthian believers, you also did not take the initiative to find God. He found you. So that's the commonality. He's saying, just like me, God took the initiative to find me and Church of Corinth. God also took the initiative to draw you to himself uh, for salvation. It was God who took the action to call the Corinthians to himself. This is the basis where unity comes from. We're eliminating all this, I matter. This, I bring something to the table. Or I've got something that uh, brings value to this community. What Paul is doing is saying, we will have unity when we set aside all of our reasons we think we're awesome and instead recognize God called us all. He took the initiative. It's just a group of people that showed up that God decided to say, I'll save you. And he picked us even though we didn't deserve it. 
When confronting disunity, we have to acknowledge this kind of mutual accountability to the Lord. That we don't pursue in any community, whether it be in our church or in our home or in other places where we spend time together as Christians, we're not here to pursue our rights and privileges. Because what rights and privileges do we have as believers? Merely that God called us. That's the right and privilege we have. The right and privilege we have is that God has moved in our hearts that we might trust him. But we tend to bring things to the table and say, oh, but I contribute this. I have this gifting. I have this resource. I have this opinion. If I weren't here, the place would fall apart, we might imagine. And Paul says that's where disunity happens. The only thing that must be true for a place to have unity is for everybody to set aside their own interests and recognize we're only a part of the body of Christ because he took the initiative to call us. It moves us to uh, humility. Is that we, instead of pursuing our own rights and privileges, we submit to God's calling. So God's work with his people. Number one, he takes the initiative. But here's good news. I want to give you some good news. Well, I hope this is good news. But I can't tell. I'm kind of on the... God doesn't just call us. He gives us purpose. He doesn't just call us in and say, show up. He calls us in and says, I have purpose uh, for you. And this has two sides of it. He gives us something to engage in, in his kingdom, but he also calls us out of a life that we had before. So let's think about that kickball game again. We had the two captains. One is God and one is, well, somebody else. He's going to lose, whoever that is. And so God picks the kid playing over in the mud. Remember the kid in the mud? Of course you do. You might have been that kid. So he picks the kid playing over in the mud. So when he picks that kid, says, I want you on my team, by definition, when that kid responds to the call of God, what is he agreeing with? I am coming out of the mud hole and joining the team of God. God isn't saying, I want you to be on my team, your team mud hole. He's not doing that. He's saying, I am calling you out of where you are into a new purpose, a new place, a new identity. For him to say, I want to be in on God's team and remain where I am, those two are mutually exclusive. Because God is calling him into something new, a purpose that goes beyond what he wants to do. So God's call in our life comes with specific intent. He calls us to his purpose, and this means that we leave behind our own purposes, our own plans. And that's where it gets kind of hard. So let's look at the beginning of the church in Corinth. We've already looked at the beginning of Paul's journey with Christ in Acts chapter 9. Let's look at Acts chapter 18, where we see the church of Corinth born. I'm going to read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. Now again, these are kind of longer sections of scripture that we're reading. And somebody said, boy, we're reading a lot of scripture today. You came to church, what you, did you think we are going to do? Acts chapter 18, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 17, the founding of the church in Corinth. I'm just going to have a couple of geographic notes so you can get your head around where we're at. After this, you know, because just before, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And so you got your phone, you can pull up Google Maps. Athens is where Athens currently is, and you can look at where 
Corinth is, the modern city of Corinth, is slightly north and slightly to the east of ancient Corinth because it's on the coast. But Paul basically goes due west across the Isthmus, which is harder to say than Sosthenes. <laughs> so he leaves Athens and he just goes due west over to the city of Corinth. When he got there, verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And, when, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. I should say, the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. That's funny. He yells at the Jews. I'm done with you. And he shakes his, that was a, a sign of judgment. Shake out his clothes. Walks out the door, walks in the door. It's just, I mean, even go that far. I'm going next door. Hang out with the Gentiles. I think that'd be funny. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Verse 11, Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying... This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I'd have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized, who? Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Galileo, Galileo paid no attention. He didn't care. So what happens? Paul's in Athens. He moves over to Corinth because he wants to meet up with Aquila and Priscilla. And he begins sharing the Lord while making tents. This is going to be important as we work through the book of Corinthians. Because he would not accept financial support from them. He supported himself the entire time. And so he began serving like he often does, would try to preach to the Jews. The Jews opposed him, and he finally said, forget about it. I'm not going to go to the Jews anymore. I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, many Gentiles, believed. And as Paul was sharing the gospel, God shows up in a vision, and he says something really, really interesting that we have to pay attention to. Verse 10, I'm with you. No one will attack you. I have many in this city who are my people. What God is saying to Paul here is sort of twofold. Number one, there are people in this city who trust Jesus. He's also saying this. There are people in this city who will trust Jesus. God is saying to Paul, I'm doing the same thing here as I did in your, in your life. 
I want to take the initiative to reach Corinth because they're not reaching out to me. I want to take the initiative to reach Corinth so you stay here and reach Corinth. That's what God is, is charging the Apostle Paul with doing. And now the Paul is reminding the church in this greeting, God got me because he took the initiative. And the reason there is even a church of God in Corinth is why? Because God just decided to show up. That's why. It's not because the Corinthian believer, believers were sitting around circle praying, God send us somebody to, to show us who you are. They weren't. God showed up in Corinth called, uh, through the Apostle Paul and he communicated the gospel and those who God had called to himself responded with faith. We might say this, that Paul's salvation and the faith of the Corinthian believers had a lot in common. It was God's activity to save them. But God was saving Paul for a specific purpose. What was the purpose God saved the Apostle Paul to do? We just said it, was it? Somebody yell at that. You didn't, all of a sudden you're bashful. Sent to be apostle. God called him to be apostle. So what did he call the Corinthian believers to do? A lot of things, but he's going to introduce this here in the second part of verse 2. Let's look at it. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. A couple of words there that Paul is saying ought to be true about the Corinthian believers because God has called them to purpose. Number one is sanctified. He is those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be what? Saints, sanctified and called to be saints. So these mean a couple of things I want to help us walk through because these are sort of religious words, which they ought to be. What does sanctified mean? Because these, both these words come from the same root word, which has its connection with holiness. Sanctified, we might say, means to be made holy, whereas saints means a holy one. And so sanctified means to be, to be made holy, and a saint is someone who is a a holy one. So what is Paul selling to the believers in Corinth? They are called in Christ Jesus into a life of righteousness because God has made them righteous. So he's telling them, who, where do you get your righteousness from? Because he calls them saints. Where do they get their righteousness from? Jesus, faith in Jesus. So they don't earn their righteousness because nobody can earn their righteousness. But since Jesus made you righteous, what ought you to do? Live a life pursuing becoming like Jesus. That's to be sanctified. He's saying you have been made for something special because you are called into relationship with Jesus. So therefore, live in the reality of what you have made, been made to be. Uh, so I have an illustration. I've used this a hundred times and I'm going to keep using it until you get it. Because holiness is a sort of a religious, churchy Bible word, but we have to understand what it means. And so, I've told you this. I have something in my kitchen that is holy. What is it? Some of you have heard this. You forget. It's my spatula. I have holy spatulas. What do I mean by that? Well, here's a couple. I have a plastic spatula. What's that for? Non-stick pans. You use a metal, you use metal spatula in my non-stick pan, it is going to get loud. Because then I have to buy a new pan, okay? Now, then we have a metal spatula that's really good for flipping like fish. It's like a fish spatula. But then we'll walk outside to the grill, and now we have a special spatula. It's big, and it's got a handle, handle like three feet long. Because daddy doesn't want to burn his knuckles. 
I want a, I want a big long handle so I can reach out. I can, I can flip burgers from my couch. That's how, how long that handle is. So why are these spatulas holy? Because they have a particular purpose. That's what holy means. It means called to something particular. So the, the spatula is holy because each of them has a particular use that they are intended for. What Paul is saying to the believers, you have been saved for a particular use, a particular purpose. And in this, he, he's going to get very, very specific as we work through the book of, Cor- of 1 Corinthians. But he's starting out with this. You were called not to stay in the mud hole. You were called out of it to righteousness and holiness. You don't have to clean yourself off. God makes you clean. But he has called you to a purpose. And that is a life of holiness as you seek to glorify God in what he has done in your life. You're called to live like a saint having been made a saint. We might say it this way. We have a, a life of significance because God has saved us. And since God has saved us, we now have a life of self-control. So if we were to do this right, we'd say we have a life of significance in Christ. Yeah! Into a life of self-control. Boo! <laughs> we don't like that. I want to have significance in God doing whatever I want. Putting it nicely, that means you don't want God. Because God calls you into significance, into a purpose that might exclude what you want. It does exclude what you want if your desire is for ongoing sin because he calls us into, into holiness. So we follow God's ways and we pursue God's kingdom by trusting him and seeking first the kingdom of God, as Jesus says in the book of Matthew. Look at the second part of verse 2. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He says, look, we're together with everybody. Who, are we, who, who gathers for a church today? The body of Christ. We as a body of believers in this particular location, as a particular body of believers, have gathered together in this place. But we are not uh, the only people gathering uh, together. There are churches all over the world gathering together. And what Paul is saying here of the, of the believers in Corinth, your significance comes from being in Christ and gathering together with all these other believers. You're part of something bigger that God is doing in the kingdom of God. The, the work of God in his kingdom is bigger than you as an individual. And the work of God in his kingdom is bigger than a, a local church. We're just a small part of the big thing that God is doing. And this is going to be important for the believers in Corinth because they, were, they thought they were pretty awesome sauce. They thought they had it dialed in. This is a, a, a wealthy church. They have a number of people in the church have a lot of financial resources. This is a, a church in a metropolitan and cosmopolitan, a relatively sophisticated social structure. So this church is, is on the cutting edge of churchy church stuff. They aren't backwoods, backwater, dirt road to a podunk church. This is big time. This is the big show. We've, if, you're, if you're in the church of Corinth, you, you kind of made it. And Paul is saying, your significance is because of what you are in Christ, not because of anything about 
You, think of it this way. I mean, think about the biggest, I don't know, what's the biggest church you know of? Do you know of any big church? There might be a, some pretty good-sized churches. Maybe in our area, maybe a few churches have a couple thousand people or more, right? Some big cities, you know, down in Los Angeles might be churches with 20,000 people. I mean, that's, is that a lot of people for a church? I mean, it seems like it. seems like that's a lot of people. There's a lot of donuts. That's what I think of. <laughs> you know, donut budget's probably bigger than our whole budget. And, uh, but think about this way. Let's just think of a, a big church, not a specific one. Say there's a, a church down in Southern California. It's got 20,000 people. It seems like a really big church. How many people are going to get together today to watch NFL live in Southern California? More than 20,000 people. I mean, the church doing its best thing on its biggest home run does not hold a candle to the number of people. So our significance is all messed up. Our, our significance, all, and that's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. Oh, he had a lot of people show up. Whoop-de-doo. Significance comes from being a small part of this big thing God is doing because he took the initiative. He took the initiative. And so we get to be a, a small part of the big thing he's doing in our local church. And we get to be a small part of the big thing he's doing on the West Coast. And we get to be a small part of the big thing he's doing around the world. And that's where our significance comes. Not from what we hope brings a significance, but because God took the initiative to call him into himself to give us purpose. And that purpose calls us out of an old life into a new life where we say no to the desires of the flesh and we say yes to the leading of the Holy Spirit where we serve others and not ourselves. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's a lot of what the book of 1 Corinthians is going to be about. Final greeting, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this may seem like a bit of a standard greeting for Paul. Good, he said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But this, in many ways, is miraculous that Paul prays this way for this church. Remember, there's, there's distinct and powerful disunity happening in, within the church, but also between the church and the Apostle Paul. If you had somebody treating you the way this church was treating the Apostle Paul, you would not pray for them grace and peace. You would pray for them, may God smite you and all like you. Paul didn't, had no reason to seek for them the blessing of God's graciousness and kindness. But, God, but Paul does pray for grace and peace from God to them. Now, why is it that Paul would pray that God would bestow onto them grace and peace, even though they are causing in his life no grace, no peace. Why would Paul do that? And the reason is simple. Because God showed him grace and peace when he didn't deserve it. When he was trying to destroy believers, God showed him grace and peace. So now that he has another believer or church trying to ruin him, he says, you know what? God showed me grace and peace when I tried to ruin people. I want God to show to them the same grace and peace God has shown to me. And this is the basis for how they are going to find unity. They're not going to pursue their own interests. They're not going to negotiate. They're not going to sweep under the rug. They're not going to do power plays. They're all together going to say, who called us? God did. And we pray that God shows the other grace and peace. That is where unity comes from. 
Unity comes from self-sacrifice by copying what our Savior did. So if you have unity with Christ, it is because he came to provide you grace and peace. When you wanted to kill him, when you wanted to run away from God, Jesus came and died on the cross for your sin. That's what the book of Romans says. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So while we were still sinners, Jesus comes and communicates to us grace and peace to you. And we respond by his grace, by the power of his Holy Spirit in faith. And when we do that, his grace and peace is poured out to us because he is powerful enough to save us from our sin when we trust him. This is a miraculous greeting because their relationship was so broken, but Paul prayed it nonetheless because his ruined relationship with God was restored the same way when God called him on that road miraculously. God works with his people. He takes the initiative and he gives us a specific purpose. Here in these verses is a, a purpose to live in holiness. As we work through the book of Corinthians, he's going to have even more specific things of how that works out. All right, a couple of things and then I'm going to uh, call the worship team up here. Things I just wanted to, uh, uh, well, kind of meddle in your life a little. Here we go. When we recognize everything God does to call us into relationship with him, and we recognize everything that he has done to make us more like Jesus, that should move us into humility. And that's what we see in the Apostle Paul. We tend to take too much credit for how good a believer we are, and we tend to take too much credit for how bad a believer we are. When we understand how God is working in our life as believers, we ought to be moved to humility. That God is the one who is working out my salvation and I pursue him in response as an act of worship. My argument for those of us who call us followers of Christ and um, maybe I don't know how to say this politely, we're church-going folk. There is a call here to humility that when somebody comes up to you and says, how is it that your relationship with God has grown over the years? And if your answer, if your initial answer is going to be something you've been doing, then, then we need to listen to the Bible here. Well, the reason I'm so close to the Lord is I pray every day. Really? I'm glad you pray every day, but you think that's what got you closer to the Lord? You know, well, the reason I'm close to the Lord is I read my Bible every day. I, I'm, I'm glad you read your Bible every day. I, I don't really believe you, but I'm glad you say you do. <laughs> but you, you think you're the one that's getting you closer to God? Because what Paul might say, so you got up one morning. Let's say yesterday. Yesterday was what? Saturday? Some of us might have gotten up, poured a cup of coffee, and read our Bible. I know, miracles happen on a Saturday. And, and you sit there and say, oh, man, I'm so excited. I read my Bible. Why do you think you read your Bible? Because God kicked you out of bed. He was so kind enough to you, you could afford good coffee. And he moved in your heart that you wanted to read his Bible. So that's where we say, thank you, Lord, for bringing me to this place. I want to read your Bible. Now, some of you are saying, oh, I read my Bible. I didn't want to. Okay. Well, he's working there too. <laughs> we're going to give him the, what we're saying is God gets the credit. God is the one who gets the credit for what's happening in our life. We take too much for credit for those areas of our life that we say are advancing uh, in Christ. Okay, next one. That was just one. We got three, two more. <clears throat> I want you to think about this seriously. When you look at what God has done in your life to save you from your sin and to draw you closer to him in relationship, here's the question I want you to consider. This is the question Paul is going to pose for the church in Corinth. 
What do you think he wants you to do with that? God has called you out of the mud hole into relationship with him by faith in Christ Jesus. And now he, by his grace, is calling you to closer and closer relationship with him. What is it he wants you to do with that? What is God's purpose in your life for him drawing you closer to him? And that's something you might need to think about. That's something you might need to pray about. That might be something you might write down. Is I work, we work through the book of Corinthians, and he offers numerous ways in which purpose in the kingdom of God can be worked out. You might need to, you know what? I have never thought about my life being more than me. I thought I'd just get saved so I feel better about being forgiven. And Paul's saying, no, no, you get, yeah, you feel great about being forgiven, but you've been called on to mission. You've been called into service. And each one of us must think about what is that purpose that God has called me into? I don't want to give it away, but in 1 Corinthians 12, he's going to describe us as a body. A body with many parts. And so you got this body that's running down the, the road, trying to get somewhere, but it's limping. Why? Because right foot can't figure out his purpose. So he's on the bench. He's benched himself because he doesn't like the purpose. I wish I was a left hand. I don't want to be a right foot. So what happens to the body? It runs down the road with a, a serious limp. And so this is something Paul is going to be doing. He's saying, you've been called into the body of Christ for purpose, to fit with the rest of the body of Christ. And you probably won't like the part you are. Nonetheless, what is our purpose? So as we work through the book of Corinthians, one of the things you may be challenging yourself with by the Spirit is saying, what's my purpose? What does being set apart to be used by God look like in the places God has placed me, in my home and in my community, in my work, in my school, wherever it might be? Okay, last one. You ready? Save the best for left. Well, I don't even know. Holiness, we talked about being sanctified and being saints. Holiness is obedience to God. Is that complicated? Holiness is obedience to God. I don't know how to say this nice, so I won't. God doesn't obey us to do things we're doing automatically. God does not have to command me to eat ice cream. God doesn't have to command you to breathe. So the Bible is filled with things he calls us to that we would not otherwise want to do. Pray without ceasing. Okay, pray all the time for people. Have you seen these people? That's, you know. So God calls us into a life of holiness where we say no to our desires that are sinful and say yes to worshiping God with our life. That's what he has called us to do. So this is the last thing we're going to end with this. What do you need to confess to God and what do you need to ask him for his power to overcome? Because all of us got something. As soon as I brought it up, right in your head, maybe if you're like some of us, three things, I don't know. What is it you need to confess to God? You thought I could keep playing in the mud hole and have purpose. And God is saying, no, I'm calling you out of the mud hole. I'm calling you away from a life of sin into a life of walking with me. And there might be some things in your life where it's time to say, Lord, that needs to be in my past, not my future. But it's really, really difficult to overcome sin, as you know. And so maybe this is going to take some time. So God, give me the power to start saying no. To start putting those things of the flesh to the side and pursuing you in righteousness. That's my last thing. What do you need to confess to God and ask his power to overcome 
in your life. Let me pray and then the worship team will lead us in a closing song. God, we thank you for the fact that you have called us into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. It wasn't because we deserved it. it. wasn't because we were pursuing you. It's because you took the initiative to call us into salvation by faith. I would pray for those who are here this morning that right now in this moment, you are calling them to salvation by faith in Jesus. They know they need forgiveness of sin by trusting you. I would pray even now that they would seek you and trust you for forgiveness. God, I would pray for those of us who are believers, and maybe we've been believers for a long time. Uh, we have never thought about what does it mean in my life to have purpose for the kingdom of God. We've never considered what our gifts might be, what part of the body that we have. And so, God, I would pray as we work our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, you might open our eyes to the specific purpose you've given for each one of us. God, when we discover and understand what it is, I pray we wouldn't shrink back. But instead, we'd say, yes, Lord. And we'd get after it. And God, I know uh, for a room with this many people in it, many of us have come in this morning with sins that we carry that uh, are weighing us down with shame and regret. And God, I pray in this moment, you would give us the power by your grace to confess them to you, recognizing that they are sin. And God, I would ask, especially for those who have been discouraged by efforts to overcome sin and experience failure, that you would encourage us that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So give us the strength, God, to follow you in worship through holiness. We thank you for Jesus. Can't wait till he comes back. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song?